This episode is sponsored by Hire.com. Hire.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal and accounting and tax support. And they'll give you $2,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $4,000 instead. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Freelancer Show. This episode is sponsored by Nerd.us. Do you wish that somebody else would handle all of those operation details when it comes to hosting your client's web applications? Nerd.us is a Ruby on Rails managed hosting designed to make your life easy. They migrate everything for you, and new signups or referrals come with a $100 discount or a referral fee. To sign up, go to freelancershow.com slash nerd. That's freelancershow.com slash N-I-R-D, and enter freelancer into the contact form for a discount. If you're someone who runs your own service-based business, then spending less time on pesky admin tasks means having more time to focus on your client's work, which is why you need to give FreshBooks a try. FreshBooks is the invoicing solution that makes it incredibly simple to create and send invoices, track your time, and manage your expenses. It allows you to quickly see and track the status of your invoices, expenses, and projects, and allows you to keep track of your expense receipts in FreshBooks. For your free 30-day trial, go to freshbooks.com slash freelancers and enter the Freelancer Show in the How Did You Hear About Us section when signing up. This week's episode of the Freelancer Show is brought to you by Earth Class Mail. Earth Class Mail moves your stale mail into the cloud, giving you instant access 24-7 and integrates with the tools and services you use every day. It's crazy that we've moved everything we do for the business over to the digital world, but still need to pick up, sort, and manage physical mail. With Earth Class Mail, you can get all of your mail scanned and accessible online 24-7. You can search your mail, send invoices over to your accounting software, sync important documents into cloud storage, deposit checks, and really just make running your business a whole lot easier. You also get real professional address to share publicly with customers, business partners, and investors. And you'll never need to worry about someone showing up at your door if you run your business from home. Visit freelancershow.com slash mail and you'll get your first month of service free when you sign up. That's freelancershow.com slash mail. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 186 of The Freelancer Show. On this week's panel, we have Jonathan Stark. Hello. And Philip Morgan. Howdy. And I'm Reuven Lerner. And this week, we are going to talk about, well, I want to say content marketing, but Philip, why don't you give us a, a better nuanced uh, description of how the, the problem we're going to try to attack? Well, here's the headline version, and then we'll get into the full version. The headline version is... What you have, pro- have probably seen online in terms of advice about how to do content marketing is mostly wrong if you're selling professional services and if your cl- trust is really the, the primary lever you're trying to pull in your content marketing, increasing trust in, in prospects. If that's you and you're out there online searching for, you know, how do I do content marketing and, and what kind of stuff should I create and, and so forth, you're probably getting advice that's not meant for you. It's meant for somebody else. And we can certainly get into that. But by way of a sort of a headline capsule summary, that's what I think would make for a great discussion today. So, yeah. So the classic advice is if you are, I don't know, let's say, you know, you're a Rails developer. Right. And you want people to come in. So you're going to write lots of stuff demonstrating your expertise in Rails development. And people will discover your fantastic content about it and say, this is the person I want to hire. And you'll be getting lots of calls. Is that sort of the thing you're trying to push against? 
In a nutshell, let me get one level more specific. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I guess by way of background, I should say that for a while I had a service called My Content Sherpa that was it was a subscription service for creating content marketing for people. So I, I learned a lot of this stuff the hard way, <laughs> which is how I tend to learn things. And um, so I'm speaking from experience here. If you go out and search online for, you know, how do you do content marketing? Uh, one thing you'll find in particular is what's called this, the skyscraper technique. And I ran across this when I was uh, doing my content Sherpa, and it seemed to make a lot of sense. The recommendation is that you go to uh, tools like BuzzSumo, which track the popularity of content based on how often it's been shared on social media. And you use a tool like that. That's not the only one, but that's you know a good example that people might be familiar with. Use that tool to find out what's being shared and what's popular and who the quote-unquote influencer, influencers are who are sharing a lot of content. And you take that and you try to isolate some pieces of content that you could write that would make good content marketing for your business. And you basically improve upon whatever is the most popular piece out there. So if there's some piece about, you know, uh, why you should choose Rails over Python, you might say, yes, I can write that. That would make a great way to demonstrate my credibility. And so I'm going to write an even better version of that. So you're not copying or plagiarizing. You're just writing a better version of an article that speaks to a theme that has a track record of being popular. And that, in a nutshell, is, is the skyscraper technique. And, you know, I was doing stuff kind of like this and not getting great results until I, I took a completely different approach to content marketing. And, and that's what, what I think would be interesting to talk about is, is that. And I think the starting point is to question the assumption that that skyscraper technique is based on. And here's the assumption that it's based on. The assumption is the function of content marketing is to be the mouth of your online sales funnel. And the way it's the mouth is it's sort of, if you think about someone who's never heard of you and they just kind of come across your site, the first thing they might see is this article you wrote, this great, amazing article on why Rails is better than Python. And maybe they, they saw that article because someone they follow online shared it, an influencer they follow and trust shared it, or it came up in organic search results. So that's the assumption that this whole approach is predicated on is organic traffic from, in other words, Google is going to send you uh, high quality search results who land on your article and say, wow, this is amazing. I need to, you know, I need to start a relationship with this person so I can later hire them or I need to find out more about them or whatever, right? That's the assumption is that Google or organic is going to bring traffic to your content marketing and then from there, you'll start a relationship with people. Maybe they'll sign up for your email list or maybe they'll follow your blog in their RSS reader, haha, or you know, <laughs> something else, right? And I think this assumption is not – I think it works better for, for B2C companies that depend on a lot of scale. And it works very poorly for B2B consultants. And I, you know, I think the reason why is – because of trust. And, uh, you know, we should get into that. I'm sure Jonathan's going to have a few things to say about that too. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that's the assumption. And that's where I think really is the starting point for this conversation. So everyone does say, right, you have content, people sign up for your mailing list, right? I mean, the other stuff I'm not, I'm far less convinced about, 
right? That mm-hmm. someone will see your website and say, wow, this is who I want to hire. But right. the, huh, I like their content. Maybe I'll sign up for their mailing list. And over time, you build the trust with a ma- trust with a mailing list. Um, not only does this make sense to me, but I've been building toward that on my own. Um, and I think I've even seen it start to work. So where, where is the flaw in that? That's fine if it works that way, but uh, from <laughs> from from the perspective of how to best use content marketing, I mm. think that that assumption that someone's going to uh, well, first of all, here's here's a couple of flaws with it. Uh, Google is not a great business partner unless you are paying them money, and then they're a better sort of business partner for you. They have a history, and and by, by Google, I really kind of mean all search engines. They have a history of, of tr- updating their algorithm and, and that affecting people's search rank. And they do that for good reasons, but you are kind of, there's probably a saying for this, like, you know, the, the tail wagging the dog or something like that. But uh, anyway, you're sort of at Google's whim if you depend on them to bring traffic to your content marketing. And if nobody sees your content marketing, it's completely ineffective. Right. I mean, that goes without saying. So right. you need to have some control. I think you, you should have some control over who sees your content marketing. And to do that, you either have to pay money to Google and essentially advertise your content marketing or uh, and again, when I say Google, I mean all search engines. Or you have to assume that Google will never bring you traffic and you have to find some own way to get traffic to your content marketing. And then once you do that, everything changes. Everything changes for the better. If you say, I'm not going to depend on Google to bring traffic to my content marketing or I'm not going to depend on you know, influential people on social media to share it. Those things do work. But if you say to yourself, I'm not going to depend on those, I'm going to find another way, your content marketing becomes, in my experience, dramatically more effective. And hopefully that raises the question, okay, if you're not depending on Google, how do you get traffic to your content marketing? And uh, my answer to that is you get out in the world and you teach people something. And there's a number of ways to do that. And in doing that, you build their trust a lot so that when they move from experiencing you teaching something to following up by looking at the content marketing you've created, their trustometer is already way above zero. And the effect of your content marketing is much more effective at that point because they're not just some cold, you know, web traffic that's landed on your site. There's someone who's there because they experienced you doing some kind of teaching thing, you know, giving a talk, guesting on a podcast, et cetera. Have you got a couple more examples of that? Of, of, of teaching? Mm-hmm. I do. Some of this comes from our conversations offline, Jonathan, that uh, there's sort of a, a hierarchy of what is most impressive in terms of a teaching activity and what's least impressive or what, in, you know, what increases the trustometer the most and, and what's not as effective. So what's the most effective is, is giving a talk, a live talk in front of people where you're physically there and they can see if you're sweating bullets and if you, uh, you know, they just kind of get the vibe of whether you really know what you're talking about and you're confident and whether you can handle yourself on a stage in front of an audience. That's pretty much the gold standard for a, a teaching activity that will increase people's trust the most. 
podcast guesting is, you know, we already mentioned giving talks at like smaller events or local meetups is another option that might be more accessible to people. That brings up the question, of course, of whether you're talking to your peers or people who could potentially hire you. And that's always something you want to think about when you're deciding how you're going to do some sort of teaching activity. Webinars are somewhere in there. I, I don't, I, I couldn't say exactly where they are on the scale of ability to increase trust, but they're better. They're a lot better than nothing and they're, they're scalable and they don't require you to uh, travel most of the time. Wow. That's my short list anyway of, of teaching yes. activities. Wow. There's, there's others. <laughs> I mean, I give lots of talks at conferences, but I don't see how, and, and, and I, that's translated into work, but I've mm-hmm. never thought about a connection between the talk at a conference and someone signing up for my mailing list. Or someone, or someone just getting more content marketing for my site. Can you maybe bridge that gap a little better for me? Yes. Well, forgive me for having such a strong opinion on this, but you absolutely, if if you're going through the effort of preparing a talk and delivering the talk and potentially traveling, and you are not creating a very well aligned next step for people who are interested in you, then I think you're missing an opportunity. So the next step could be, you know, at the end of the talk, it's usually okay to have some sort of, you know, if you're interested in this, take this next step, some sort of call to action for people who want to learn more. And again, that's where your content marketing can start to come in. So it's no longer the mouth of the funnel. It's somewhere in the middle of the funnel. People have, you know, witnessed you doing this extraordinary thing called getting up in front of people and talking and teaching them something or having a, you know, sort of contrarian opinion that you can support or something like that, you should have a next step for them. That is, hey, if you found this interesting, go here and do this. And I'm kind of intentionally keeping that part vague. It's some sort of call to action. I think it should get people on a list so you can start to market to them, but it doesn't have to do that. But what it does is it it just kind of takes that one-time event of you being at a conference and giving a talk and turns it into a relationship. That's really what, what that next step should do. In some way, it should turn it into an ongoing relationship so you can start to further dial up the trustometer in these clients and keep yourself top of mind and, and so forth. Which means that my typical last slide when I give a talk of, if you want, you can contact me at blah, 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 blah should really be replaced with, if you like this, there's lots more at, like, go here to sign up. And I guess probably even the shorter the URL, the better, because people can then enter it on their phones and sign up. Yeah, I know Jonathan has experimented with uh, text SMS-based calls to action for talks. That's an option. Or just buying a a really catchy, easy-to-remember domain name and having that point to a, a landing page where people can download the PDF or sign up for the email course or, or just put in their contact info. Any one of those would work. But yeah, if it's just like, here's my email address, here's my Twitter handle, I really think you're, you're missing an opportunity to deploy content marketing in a way that it's most effective. So here's some examples, um, some concrete examples. Uh, anytime I've done a site-wide opt-in for any kind of lead magnet, uh, I get about 1.5 to 3% opt-in rate. And I know that people who are vastly better at this than I am 
the best they can do is like a 10% opt-in rate on a site-wide opt-in for some piece of content marketing, like an email course or, you know, a lead magnet, like a download this PDF checklist of things you should know before you do this, that kind of thing. I routinely get opt-in rates of 30 to 40% on landing pages that receive traffic that's a follow-on to something like a podcast guest appearance or a, or a talk. I don't do live talks, really. I will at some point, but I don't, don't really do them now. So my numbers are, are related to people who listen to me as a guest on a podcast. They get to the end, and my call to action is go to this landing page and sign up for an email course. And those landing pages routinely convert between 30 and 40% of traffic, which is, uh, you know, if, if this was like a headline for some link bait article, the headline would be how I got a 3,000% increase in, um, <laughs> or was it 300%? I don't know. Anyway, it would just be some mind-blowingly big number increase in opt-in rate. And again, that's because I did the hard work of building people's trust in a, something that feels I don't know, just more powerful to them than reading an article so that when they go to my content marketing, they're already warmed up and they are in a much different place. So anyway, that's kind of my, we, we've laid it out, I think now in its, in its fullness. So we should probably just try to p- pick it apart, but that's my sort of hypothesis about content marketing. It should be the middle of the funnel, not the mouth of the funnel and the mouth of the funnel should be some kind of teaching thing. Yeah, I mean, it's all about taking control and like doing something a little bit more proactive than the feeling of, you know, probably everybody listening to this has, you know, New Year's resolution. This year I'm going to start blogging more because that's going to make my business better. And if you're a solo freelancer or solo consultant or your small firm, you've probably tried this and, you know, maybe you get a few articles out and then six months later you go to do another one and the first line is, wow, it sure has been a long time since my last month. Sorry, like apologizing as if anybody <laughs> cared. And I, I I totally agree with this. We're completely on the same page. And I geez, I have I took some notes while you were talking of like a I want to jump around a little bit and kind of support the argument, I guess, uh, and then add a little bit of depth on a couple of things. But I think trust is the is the big one for me. So like the uh, what Philip said about speaking to a group of people in person where you are on stage, you know, you're sort of like uh, anointed by the conference organizers to be worthy of holding the attention of 20, 50, 100, 1,000 people uh, who are probably paying to be there. Uh, that sort of gives you that third-party endorsement of the organizers, and then you go up there and kill it. And people get the sense, people in the audience who are going to potentially be ideal customers for you are going to, um, like, they're there are people who will like your personality as it is projected from the stage and people who you will probably also like. So I guess I would say that it's not like the entire audience is now going to trust you more than they did before, but the people in the audience who are your ideal customers are going to run to the stage at the end to give you their card. And, you know, that leads me to the next thing, which is that you want to, if you're going to do speaking gigs, which I think are the you know, definitely the gold standard for building trust as fast and and high as possible. It's like get the needle up, you know, spike the needle really quickly. Conferences definitely do that, but it is tricky to get that to get that conversion at the end to get make that bridge the gap from them being anonymous to you to them being a known person to you. So, like I said, they'll 
the really hot leads will come up to the stage, give you their card, please email me, that kind of thing. And then there are other people in there, and I've tried a couple of things like uh, using text message opt-ins, which worked great in one case where I worked the SMS thing into the, the, the meat of the talk. It was part of the content. So it worked amazingly for that. Uh, other times I've tried it at the end, so, you know, if you want to, you know, if you want to download the slides for this uh, talk, just SMS, you know, future to one, two, three, four, five. And that didn't work really that great. So Jonathan, do you have a, sorry to jump in. Do you have a sense of what was sort of the bribe that you were offering them in, in exchange? And was it just was it getting the slides from the talk? I usually, I find that people often, it's without fail, people want the slides. And the slides that I give people are not just the slides. They're the slides with all my speaker notes. So they're like a work, uh, what's it called? It's like a workbook. Yeah. Uh, There's like, you can actually choose from Keynote to print it out with the notes. And I do like, you know, three slides per printed page with uh, the notes next to them. Uh, You can see these on SlideShare. If you look for Jonathan Stark on SlideShare, there's some examples up there. And without, without fail, I think that is the, the thing that people want the most. And then what I do, rather than sort of putting too much, I'm a little sensitive about being too markety in a talk. The types of talks that I do wouldn't be super appropriate uh, to get real salesy at the end, even if I had, you know, I think it's always an appropriate call to action to say, hey, if you want these slides, you can download them here. But then in the download, I put an additional slide at the end that I didn't show during the, uh, in the actual talk where I'll put that stuff in. And in the PDF, it's actually clickable. So, um, you know, I'll have a slide at the beginning, which I tend to skip over in an actual talk if I feel like people already know who I am. But, you know, they don't, they're definitely not, they don't know everything about me. They They might know me in a particular way, like, oh, he's the responsive web guy or, oh, he's the phone gap guy, which gives me enough cred to give the talk. Uh, but I don't want to spend like five minutes talking about myself at the beginning of the talk. But I will still have that slide in there. Uh, I'll skip over it pretty much in the talk. Maybe I'll talk to it for 10 seconds if it's relevant. But in the in the download, it's there. So for the people who have taken that next step of downloading the slides, then in there, there's going to be like, oh, wow, he's also the CTO of Sticky Albums. And oh, geez, uh, he was that Jonathan's card guy. And all these other things about me that are relevant but aren't you know relevant in general but maybe weren't relevant to the talk I was giving. Hmm. Right. Uh, That's really so interesting. Kind of sneak it in there and it's all clickable because it's a PDF. So they can they can sort of jump off from there to any place they want. I have experimented with specific landing pages for a particular conference and that works well. It just takes a little bit of pre-planning where you have, uh, like Philip said, a particular landing page with a very easy to remember, easy to say and easy to remember URL, not necessarily short, where you say, you know, go to whatever, independentconsultingmanual.com slash... TED Talk or whatever it is, and the, oh, okay, and then they they go there, and then you have, uh, I think Kai Davis describes this as sort of continuing the conversation that you started on stage, and so it's it's just a real natural flow. They land on the page. It says, "Hey, you know, if it was a TED Talk, then it says, hey, Tedster, you know, wasn't that awesome? Blah blah blah, and this and that, and here are the things I promised, and you know, you can have like uh, it's one of the it's one of the few places where I'm fairly cool with having lots of links on a page. I'm generally not a big fan of having lots of links on a page. I like to kind of pull the reader through a particular course of action that I want them to take and putting lots of links throughout the body of text forces them to make a decision every time they hit one. It's like a speed bump. It's like, oh, should I click on that? Should I come back later? Should I open it in a tab behind this window? 
I don't want them thinking that. I want them reading what I'm saying. But with a, a page like like a conference landing page, I think it's cool to have like a bunch of. It's almost like a little resource center where you've got all these links to all these things, and people can quickly get a, an overview of the depth and breadth of your expertise, which is the perfect time for that to happen. And certainly on that page, you're going to want to have some kind of next step they can take, like, of course, signing up for your mailing list or perhaps something even a little bit more, a little farther down the funnel, like, you know, click here to have a 15-minute a, a free call or click here to have a, a paid call or something like that. Does that track yeah, with I, your experience? Absolutely. Uh, to me, this sort of from a from like a, a content marketing design perspective, it, it's all about the alignment. So whatever teaching thing you do, whether it's, you know, talking at a big conference or, or appearing on a, you know, very lowly uh, podcast with a small audience, whatever that next step you present is should not be, hey, go to my website. There's awesome stuff there. You can learn all about me. Hey, go read my blog. Those are really terrible calls to action because they don't encapsulate some kind of benefit and they lead people to a website usually that has, you know, at least 10 different things you could do. And so those don't make great calls to action. What does make a good call to action is all the examples you gave, Jonathan. And those all are what makes those work is how closely they're aligned with the talk. They're like the natural next step, right? So they extend the value of the talk. They let people learn more. They let people go deeper. They let people get closer to you. Any of those things, as long as they're just 100% aligned with what the talk or the teaching event was about, those make for a great next step. And, and those make for a great mouth, not really mouth anymore, but entry to your world of content. And one of the nice things about getting people on a list is you can sort of structure their journey through your content. So instead of saying, here's an index of all the articles I've ever written, <laughs> which is what a blog really is, um, sometimes it's you know categorized, but usually it's just a, a sequential list of everything you've ever written and published on the blog. Uh, that's not like a, a curated experience. So if you have a fair bit of blog content, you can you know get people who listen to you appear on this podcast. You can send them to a landing page, and once they're on a list – if you know that they are on your list because they came through that landing page, then if you want, it's not always necessary to do it this way, but if you want, you can kind of curate their experience of your content and you can structure it for them in a way that makes sense and hopefully sort of accelerates their journey from person who just joined your list to, you know, newest client who just gave you money. So, so it sounds like if I give a talk or even if I give a webinar, if I do a guest pot, guest on a podcast somewhere, like what you're saying is don't say learn more about me here. Instead, I should think about what is the message that I'm giving? What is the topic I'm talking about at that particular venue, that particular talk, webinar, podcast, whatever, and create, if I don't have one already, create an email course. And it might even repeat some of the stuff I had there or that I've got in my blog. But the mere mm -hmm. fact that it's in an email course means people are going there. They're learning more about that specific subject and then I can even do what I do now on, on, on my email courses, which is fold them into my main list. But I've basically then built the trust and given them what they wanted, which is more on that subject, which is better for everyone. Absolutely. Uh, keep in mind who you're talking to. If, you know, if it's, uh, if it's C-level people, I, I don't think a lot of them are going to sign up for an email course. <laughs> they, they don't really 
do business in their inbox quite the same way uh, that people lower in the organization do. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as long as you're you're keeping in mind the way that I say it is they need to be naturally incentivized to pay attention to your marketing. So, uh, you know, if it's like a training manager or a director level, they would probably, in most cases, sign up for an email course if they see value in it. But, you know, again, the CEO is probably not going <laughs> to want to invite any email into their inbox that's not uh, curated by their own gatekeeper, you know, their executive assistant. Right. I go with Jonathan has more experience with this, so you should probably answer that question. <laughs> yeah, I'd go with like a white paper or an executive summary or something like that. Uh, that they would be able to download uh, if I was going to try and capture it that way or just tell them to pick up the phone and call. I mean, if you're dealing with people at that level, I would much prefer to just get them on the phone as well worth my time to have a 15-minute call with a CEO-level person. Uh, There's a a theme that's coming up, and this show doesn't really need to be about speaking engagements or or that sort of thing, but there's a, a common thread here, which is that in all... I think without exception, all of the things that you recommend putting in front of traditional content marketing, all of them include your voice, your actual voice. So whether it's podcast, webinar, meetup, speaking gig, whatever, the listeners or the audience can hear you. And that communicates so much. I think it just it communicates a lot about a person, how they speak, everything. It's just really personal. It's like a fingerprint. And when they do get to read something that you wrote, they'll hear it in your voice. So when they, I, I get this a lot from people who've read my books, they'll say, uh, well, friends of mine, so uh, like the, the guy who edited my first book for me, he was laughing. He was like, when I'm reading this book, I'm hearing you say it to me. And I think that that amplifies, if, if someone comes into your funnel through, a personal interaction like that. What I don't mean, in, I mean, I mean a more let's call it intimate interaction like that. It's going to amplify the effect of the articles that uh, they read later, or whether it's email, or whether it's you know slides that they downloaded, or whether it's articles on your website. So I, I you know, that's just a gut instinct, but I feel pretty strongly about it. And the what was that? There's something else related to that. Now it's escaping me. I'll give you a minute to think about that. Uh, again, one of the things that I know we've bantered about offline is uh, a lot of people end up doing the kind of work we do, freelance or you know, going out on your own type work, because maybe they're a little introverted. Maybe they don't. Maybe they're really actually not a team player, which I think is fine. <laughs> In fact, I'm really. I mean, to be honest, I'm not a team player. I'm not like wired to want to surround myself with a team and work every day with a team. And then it's like one day you, you wake up and you're like, oh my gosh, I, I am in the, the relationship business. <laughs> when you kind of realize that that's this huge part of, of freelancing and, and having that be a sustainable long-term career, it's like half of the game is, is being good at starting and maintaining relationships. And it's this sort of cool irony for, for those of us who are not naturally gifted with that because if we were we'd probably you know be in an organization or, or be in sales or something but to tie that to what you were saying Jonathan when people hear you speak it sort of kickstarts the relational part of our brain I think I don't have any science to back this up but you know it starts a conversation 
which that's really what your marketing should be as much as possible is a two-way conversation that increases people's trust. And so if you start that with, hey, I, you know, I was Googling around and I landed on this article, that's a very different starting point than I saw this person talk. They clearly know what they talk, they're talking about and they're you know, together enough that they can handle themselves in front of a group. Well, the relationship has already begun. And like you said, the follow-on content that they might see on your site or on an email list they're they're literally going to hear it in your voice inside their head. They're going to you know hear that northeastern accent, or that southern accent, or whatever it is, and it it just deepens the relationship. And and all of a sudden, the content marketing is deepening an existing relationship rather than trying to start a new relationship. And you know, if you're WP Curve and you you know depend on a lot of scale for your business to work then you don't need to do it this way. But if you're like us and you're, you know, a small shop or a solo person and you can you live like a king with 10 clients a year, then you, you really need to build those relationships, don't you? It's so much easier. It's like it's like a shortcut. Yeah. I did remember what I was going to say too, which, which is still on the same topic. Uh, it's the flip side where the other day I, uh, where did, I don't even know where I came across it. Somebody shared a link. And the headline was intriguing. I clicked on it. It was an amazing article. I shared it with some other friends who I thought it was be relevant for. I have no idea who wrote it. And I don't care. Like, I have, it was on Medium. So, I, I don't, I'm not even sure. The only way I'd be able to probably go back and find it is to remember where I shared it, would probably in Slack, and find that link again. And that, to me, is the problem in a nutshell of using written content as the top of your funnel is mm. that it's just, it's just not, it's too anonymous in both directions. So we were talking about this, I think yesterday or last night, it's like, I, I you know, maybe I'm getting like something like, let's say it's 10,000 uniques on my website a month. I would trade that in a second for 500 people on my mailing list because I, I don't know I can't do anything with the information. Like I, like I look at Google Analytics, like, oh, it's interesting that some people are, you know, totally bouncing off this page or some people are, you know, following this path through my site. But it's totally irrelevant to me because I don't know who they are. So I could maybe, you know, you look at it and you're like, oh, geez, I should do something about this bounce rate. Well, maybe those people are terrible clients. <laughs> you know what I mean? Without knowing who they are, I'm just twiddling knobs on my content to try and change numbers in Google Analytics or whatever package you're using yeah. without knowing who the people are, you might be doing the exact opposite of something effective. You know, maybe you should be bouncing all these bad clients away, right? So you just have no, it's useless information, frankly, for, for someone like us. If you're selling sneakers, you know, if you have a Shopify store and you're selling like tennis shoes or something, then it's a different story because it's a scale game. But for exactly. people who, who need I mean, looking at my list, at the end of 2015, I did like a, you know, sort of retrospective what worked, what didn't work last year from a business standpoint. And uh, it was close to 90%. It's like 80-something percent of my income last year was from two customers. Yeah, that's, I mean, that pattern is uh, not at all uncommon. I mean, I have some product revenue in my mix, but the right 10 clients would, would keep me in Clover for a year or two, really. Mm -hmm. And I think most of our listeners are in a similar boat. 
the number of clients you need goes down, of course, as your, your rates and fees and, and profitability go up. But one question occurred to me, which I think we should touch on, which is what, where does this leave the person who's terrified of any form of speaking? You know, whether it's, even if it's a podcast where you can go back and edit it later, I still know people are, some people are super intimidated about that because they're still kind of potentially going to be on the spot, right? It's sort of a, a live event in a way. And it gets even more high stakes when you're up in front of a group of people and there's no do-overs and no delete button. Mm -hmm. I would say that you need to pick a communication channel that you are comfortable in. And if that means starting a Facebook group or that means just doing what you can to get people on your email list and engaging with them there – you need to do something where you are no longer posting anonymous content to the anonymous world and you pick a very small niche. Maybe you start with in a watering hole somewhere where you are having a conversation with actual people who who are not anonymous. And if you're more comfortable with the written word, I know plenty of people who are that sort of way, then great. Do it like that. I mean, I think doing your own podcast where you are the only person uh, like you do, Philip, I think, well, you do interviews too, so it's a nice mix. But mm-hmm. I think if people are uncomfortable live, then maybe, you know, doing a, a scripted podcast might be a way to approach it. I would, I would recommend trying it if you think you've got that in you, because I think the, I think spoken word is much more persuasive and powerful than the written word, but maybe not. And if you're, uh, if that's maybe too uncomfortable for you, maybe consider interviewing people. Uh, bringing your sort of, I get a little nervous about about doing too many interviews because then you're presenting yourself as a good interviewer, not maybe an expert in your space. But anyway, that's a side note. Yeah. Look, I, I remember back in college. I mean, it, so I was at MIT, and there's a writing requirement, and there was almost like a riot my freshman year by a bunch of students who said, "We're going to be engineers. We don't need to learn how to write." And basically, a bunch of the faculty members said, "You guys are idiots." <laughs> Because <laughs> like, what is what part of what you need to do as part of your career, you're going to be writing and you're going to be presenting. And these are crucially important skills. And I would argue that part of being in business for yourself, whether you like it or not, is being able to write and being able to present to people. So it's something that you – now, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to be comfortable with it right away. And for most people, it takes time to sort of edge into being comfortable. And everyone has different ways and different styles. But in many ways, I think it's worth almost forcing yourself to try to learn to speak in public because it's really going to do you a lot of good. Um, and you can start really small if you feel better doing it at a local meetup where you know the people and you do it on a topic that's really, really simple for you, but they don't know. Or even if they do know it, it doesn't matter. Start small and you'll build up and it'll take time, but you can get more comfortable talking to people. And I, and I really do think that that's an important part of then unlocking a lot of this, th- these other things. And and by the way, I'd say that in many ways, doing a webinar or a podcast is harder, at least for me, than doing it in person. Because in person, I can sort of feel the audience in the room and see what they're like. I mean, granted, it can be a little scary at first, but when you're doing a podcast, especially if it's just on your own or a webinar, you feel very lonely and you feel like <laughs> you don't get the feedback from others that's as immediate, which maybe can be calming, but also has a sort of surreal feel to it. Yeah, I would I would agree with that completely. For people who have trouble with even the idea of getting up in front of a group, 
probably starting with your peers, even though I, I recommend against that as your marketing plan, but as like your get more comfortable with this and practice plan, I think your peers are going to be more forgiving. They're going to, they're, they're sort of the easiest crowd to start with, I think is what I'm trying to say. It'd be interesting to do a whole show on this. And at the end of the show, I've, I'm, one of my picks is going to be an article I wrote about public speaking tips for consultants. So we can probably talk more about that. I don't know. I don't know if we really want to go like, I kind of want to get back to the content marketing stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but we should, I think it's a good idea. We should do a show on that. Yeah. So, so Philip, what about this? Is there a way to skip content marketing? Well, I guess it, we have to define content marketing because I, I want to answer yes, but I don't know exactly what you mean by content marketing. To me, content marketing is any, you know, anything that can be recorded either through writing or could be screencasts, could be YouTube videos, could be podcasts, could be live talks. I mean, any of those qualify as content marketing. So uh, under that broad definition, maybe not. But what I will say is that the faster you can get a prospect on the phone, <laughs> the better. And that certainly may not involve anything that we think of traditionally as content marketing. But, I mean, back to your question, what are you thinking there? Well, because uh, I, I was, think maybe. I was thinking, yeah, I was thinking of a much narrower definition, much more in the blogging type of realm. Okay. Yeah. Well, at, yeah, sure. You can skip that and you probably should if you're not a pretty decent writer. You should find what, what I tell people, what I tell my clients is we got to, we got to find your strengths and just use those. So, uh, and also it has to be a match for your audience. Like I have a client whose audience is, uh, she's a web designer and audience is yoga studios. So 1500 blog word blog posts are not a good content marketing choice for that, for her client. She needs to be doing things that are more visual and more bite-sized. So that's a terrible answer. But yeah, you could probably skip writing blog articles depending on your audience. Yeah, that's great that you brought that up because I was not thinking broadly enough about content marketing. I, I really do, in my mind, it really, my definition of it was really stuck back at what you said at the beginning of the show where it was kind of like the white hat version of keyword stuffing a page, you know, it's like actually writing good content that you've determined, you know, you sort of looked around the internet, you've determined what's popular, you're going to write even better articles about that. And you're sort of doing the right thing and being a thought leader in your space and all that stuff. <laughs> and, and it's, I mean, it's, I don't think it's going to hurt you in the sense that it's going to penalize you in some way, but it's a lot of work. And if you can, you know, and, and the goal isn't for you to write a bunch of blog posts and get paid for it. The goal is to like get clients for what you actually do. And if you can, if your strength is, you know, talking to a microphone with a couple of people every week and that's easy for you, then I would say maybe do that instead. But you still do need, I think it's really hard to have a call to action anywhere but on a website. So like, so that's, that's kind of like, I guess the, the farther end down the funnel. So closer to the, the pointy end of the funnel, when you get someone, where do you put calls to action other than see what I'm doing though. I'm equating content marketing with my website. And I think that this, if, if I get nothing else out of this episode, it's going to be to break that misconception. Well, well, yeah, I mean, I mean if we uh, think about content marketing as blog posts, articles organized in ways, can or should the content marketing also be audio or you know video? Well, I mean, this is an, an example outside of the world of consulting, but bear in mind that, that content marketing could easily be a YouTube channel and, or an Instagram feed. Right. That's not, I mean, th that's more from the world of products where you see people selling 
you know, like fashion stuff through an Instagram feed or a YouTube channel. And those are risky because you don't control the platform, but those for the right person could be a devastatingly effective content marketing channel. If you're wanting to demonstrate uh, skill and the best way to do that is a screencast, then, you know, your YouTube channel could be where you do 90% of your content marketing. Yeah, I've had great, in that particular example, I've had great experience. Well, I've gotten tons of likes and tons of views on screencasts that I've done on, you know, technology stuff. I don't know if it's translated into anything because I haven't tracked it. But to your point, I didn't really think of that as content marketing. But here's a distinction, but I, I see that it is now that you call mm-hmm. it up like that. So here's a, another distinction. Is an email list content marketing? Absolutely. It is. It, it is. I'm sure. Well, okay. It's it's tell, me, tell me your you're, thought you're, on it. You're giving content and you're hoping well, to build a relationship that people will then buy from you. I'd call that marketing. And contact marketing at that. Uh, yeah, I, I would okay. too. But but what so, do you, you you said it's not public. What's what's going on there with that thought? Well, so here's the, the thinking is I mean, you're not getting any SEO from it. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. So I feel like there's some kind of I've got some block mentally around. I think your definition of content marketing is way bigger than it's very mine. broad. Yes, it's yeah. a very broad. <laughs> it's kind of like any thoughts that you capture in some sort of shareable medium becomes content marketing. Right. I I mean, I think that's, I'm sorry to interrupt. I think that's based on my understanding of marketing, which is how can we build a relationship that's based on me being helpful and and results in increasing trust? Yeah, so that's not my definition. My definition of marketing is creating awareness of my product, goods, and services in the marketplace. Got it. And at some point it turns the corner into sales. And I think what you're talking about for me falls more into sales. But this is totally splitting hairs. Um, kind of is, but, and it, it, there's a big gray area there anyway. But, but, but where were you going with that thought that email is kind of a different animal? Well, here's why. Because I was on Side Hustle Nation podcast recently, and a lot of the audience on that show are at a day job, and they're looking to break out of it. And a big part of what I advise people to do is that you know you need to become a recognized expert in, as an authority in your expertise. So you want to become the go-to person for this very specific thing, uh, this very specific expensive problem that you solve for someone. And a lot of people who listen to that show don't want to blog about it because, and they don't want to put up a sales page or any of that because they're afraid that their employer is going to see it. So they feel like the world of content marketing is kind of shut off to them. And that the that they can't uh, share their passion, as I like to put it, they can't share their passion online because that's going to out them as having one foot out the door. And my sort of advice to somebody in that situation, where they they want to build their authority with an audience, but at the same time stay under the radar, I feel like is a is a maybe it's a subset of you know you're, you're focusing on a subset of the entire planet. And not everyone, and it's stuff that's never going to get you any SEO because it's all either not crawlable or it's behind a paywall or it's behind some sort of opt-in or something. It's just not public. Uh, so what I would say to people in a situation like that is like, okay, you know, network to people directly, offer them free webinar time. So like once a month or once every couple of weeks, they do a free webinar. You get the email address. You have a communication so all of your interaction with them is over email and you, there's nothing, there's no website for your thing. 
you just sell stuff through your email. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. I, it's such a different tactic that it feels like a different thing to me, but maybe I'm confusing the, maybe I'm confusing the two things or I'm conflating them, I should say. Well, incidentally, that's pretty much the same way. I would recommend somebody try to test a new position that's a dramatically different than their current market position and feels risky to them. Like you just described the exact way I'd recommend testing as direct outreach and sort of a, a you know, a, a back channel or a hidden channel that through which you communicate and market to people that, you know, that become prospects and leads through this, uh, you know, this kind of hidden marketing channel. So, I mean, I find that interesting, but to me, I, Again, I don't know that it really matters. I would just call that content marketing. It's just you're using a different distribution channel for it, one that's not available to the general public. And it's it follows that same shape of we create a relationship somehow, and and then the, the content is a follow-on to that sort of one-on-one type relationship, creationship we, we did, or one-to-many, but still has the same qualities of people are listening to your voice and, and hearing you speak. Yeah, I mean, content marketing really boils down to education, right? It's like, I guess it doesn't really matter what channel you're doing it through or if it's public or not public. It's like, you know. I define it as demonstrating your expertise. Uh, So it's any way in which you can demonstrate your expertise. But uh, oftentimes that is educating, although sometimes it's like, hey, let's, you know, let's see how this approach worked for this other person. And, you know, maybe you can see that working for yourself. So it can also be a sales tool in that way. But yeah, demonstrating expertise is really what it's all about. Gotcha. Huh, this is wild. Any last, yeah. uh, we should probably wrap up soon. Any last gotchas uh, or considerations people should think about? What, what, what if they have no content marketing at all? What's like a good first step for them to take in this direction? Uh, the first step is to paint yourself into a corner <laughs> by uh, <laughs> getting people on a list to whom you will feel beholden and also, they'll help you create content if you, if you ask them the right way. So basically, what I'm saying is you know, create a lead magnet of some sort, some reason for people to sign up for your list in exchange for an email course or a PDF download or something like that. So give them a reason to be on your list through a lead magnet, and then that will sort of create some incentives that you previously did not have, and you'll start creating content marketing. I guess that's my my one sort of takeaway uh but people i think for their content marketing to work they have to kind of get out in the world somehow and that's hard for us uh people who prefer being at home or who are introverts but with with the internet there's always a way to do that yeah i've got another suggestion that i think has been helpful for a bunch of my students which is to uh, e-bomb so go around and you look for i mean this all presumes that you're good at something and it presumes that you are have at least some focus on an audience. You have a rough idea of what audience you want to serve. Go and hang out where those people hang out online, whether it's subreddit or Facebook groups or LinkedIn or wherever. And when somebody brings up an issue that you can help them with, type up, you know, nice 500 word uh, answer right there in the, whatever platform you're on and say, this worked for me or this worked for somebody I know, or this is what I would do in that situation. And then that becomes a blog post. So, you know, uh, I sort of go uh, back and forth between my list, exactly like Philip described, and also doing e-bombing. And there's something about answering a particular person's question that makes it really easy to write, uh, for me anyway. So then I'll copy that and save it in a text document. And sometimes you have to edit it a little bit after the fact. 
Uh, but I'd probably turn that into a blog post or you could turn it into a, could turn the whole thing into the basis of a webinar or a podcast episode or something like that. But going around waterholing and looking for questions to answer has been really helpful for me to kind of break through writer's block. Very good. Well, what started as a really short, simple question or what seemed like one, uh, well, we can, we can probably continue to dive into this for many, many more episodes. Uh, and we will have no fear of listeners. <laughs> If it's up to me, we will. <laughs> we will. Right. Or, or fear, listeners. Uh, all right. Let's try to do some picks. Philip, got any picks for us this week? I have a pick. I'm a uh, polygamist when it comes to uh, to-do list managers. I've tried them all. <laughs> not, maybe not all of them. Wait, at so, the same um, time? <laughs> um, sometimes. And... Trust me, you don't want to do that. That's a disaster. Uh, so I'm uh, back to experimenting with to-do.txt, which is a very simple text-based format. That The problem I've always had with to-do lists is if you can associate too much metadata, like what sort of frame of mind you need to be in to do this task, which uh, like Omni Focus lets you do, that's not good. That doesn't work out well for me. Maybe it works better for other people. So I'm back to something very simple to-do.txt, which uh, if you just search online, you'll find all kinds of apps, mobile and desktop, that let you manage a simple to-do, a text-based to-do file. And uh, I don't know, maybe I'll check back in and let you know how it goes. If history is any indication, I'll be back writing my to-do list on a 3 by 5 card <laughs> before I know it. But we'll see. That's my pick for this week. Slowly then moving into cuneiform. Uh, yep. <laughs> scratching it on the wood surface of my desk. <laughs> Jonathan, any picks for us? Yes, uh, I've got two this week. The first is the Everyday Messenger Bag from Peak Design. And this was something I backed on Kickstarter, and it recently came in, and I love this bag. It's just amazing. I could go into the details, et cetera, et cetera. But um, they really reinvented every clasp and, and the strap and the internal pockets. It's just, it looks like a regular messenger bag, but it is not. And if you're the type of person that uh, is out and about frequently, uh, like I am, carrying my computer and a million cords and uh, all that stuff, you should really check it out. It is meant for photographers, but I think it translates pretty well to people who like us, have a bunch of little weird-shaped gadgets. Uh, so check that out. It's reasonably priced, and it's well worth the money, in my opinion. And the other thing is uh, a blog post that I wrote a while back called Public Speaking Tips for Consultants that I think is relevant to this episode, uh, where I you know, basically talk about sort of, it's not tricks, but it, it's ways to really take that, take the edge off uh, of you know, if you're if people have stage fright really bad, then I've got some tips for that. And if uh, if you if that's not your problem, you just want to have a better idea on how to basically crush it, then then that's a, a, also some tips there for you. So you can check that out at expensiveproblem.com. We'll link to it in the show notes. Excellent. I've got a pick as well. So I've started reading this book. I'm not even close all the way through it, but it's really good what I've read so far. It's called Better Than Before by Gretchen Rubin, and it's about breaking habits. And the subtitle is What I Learned About Making and Breaking Habits to Sleep More, Quit Sugar, Procrastinate Less, and Generally Build a Happier Life. So given that I would like to sleep more, eat less sugar, and procrastinate less, this sounds like a great book for me, and I'll get to it really soon. No. <laughs> um, 
Anyway, so what I what I've read the book is very interesting, and I heard an interview with her as well, and um, she talks about a lot about the psychology and uh, cognitive science about habits and forming them, and how we can sort of use the brain against itself or use ourselves to improve ourselves. Um, and she uses herself as a guinea pig in the book to try to change. And that's very well written, very interesting, and um, hopefully will allow me to make 2016 better. And worst case, I, you know, I'll just lose sleep reading this book. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's our show for this week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll be back next week with lots more tips for The Freelancer Show. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.